0: Hello and welcome to the Plus R Purist. I'm going to go ahead and record this while sitting out here. Um, I'm just by my pastures. It's sunny and, well, it's not warm, but it's warmer than it has been. <laughs> um, and I've got my needy little barn cat on my lap, so we'll see how this goes. Hopefully the audio is decent. <laughs> Today's episode is going to be all about taking in a new horse, particularly a new rescue horse. So if you follow me on Instagram, you probably saw last week that I had a bit of a delay in posting the podcast because I ended up taking in a new rescue horse and I was spending a bunch of time coordinating everything to get him taken in. Um, His name is Jazz. He's very cute. I have a video of him on my Instagram if you want to go see him. And while I go through and talk about Um, sort of my input on what you should do when you adopt a new rescue horse or take in a new horse in general. I'll talk a little bit about Jazz and about taking him in. So step one is to find yourself a pony. So before you can take the pony home you have to have one to take home. Oh hi cat. Um, My kitty's on top of the phone. Excuse you mister. Now he's mad at me. Okay. So before you can take the pony home you have to actually find a pony. Um, There are lots of things that you should consider when you're looking at different horses um, and different options for horses. When you're adopting a new horse, particularly a rescue horse, usually your options are to go through some sort of organization or to go ahead and adopt one through like a private rehoming. So if you're going through an organization, then that means that you're going through some sort of professional or some sort of association that takes in horses in need, rescues them, and then adopts them out. If you're doing this, you'll also want to pay close attention to what they do with the horses. Some of them do some rehabilitation, sometimes you get them straight from a really bad situation. So it's important to sort of evaluate what they're going to be coming from so you know what you're dealing with when they arrive. If you do a private rehoming, the same thing sort of applies. Usually that means that the person you're um, adopting from or buying from owns the horse and it's been their personal horse. The benefits of that is that you usually know a little more about their background. You get more of like a one-on-one interaction with them versus some organizations won't let you interact with them. Um, And even if they do, it's usually a little more limited. Honestly, I don't have a huge preference in regards to adopting horses through organizations versus through individuals. That can be different with a lot of other types of animals. Like if you're um, adopting a rescue dog or um, something like that, it's usually not the best idea to like purchase a rescue dog in order to like save it from the situation or like the people who like buy feeder mice from pet stores and they're like, look, I saved these mice and when in actuality like you just... Like yeah, you saved those particular mice, but you still supported the industry that's um, creating the feeder mice. Um, I'm not gonna get into that ethical debate, but anyways, um, so it's important to see like where your money's going to, um, and evaluate what you think in terms of if you're gonna buy a, a horse that's considered a rescue and you're gonna pay money for it, is that money going to further help horses or further harm horses. So if it's going to an organization, the odds are, whatever adoption fee or whatever money you put into it is going to further that organization and further help horses, versus if it's going to a private individual, um, maybe it's going to be to help recuperate their costs from taking in this rescue horse or some rehab they're doing. Maybe that individual does really great things with horses and it's, like, it's totally fine. But also, if you think the horse is coming from a bad situation and, like, its owner is the bad situation and you're giving them money, that might not be the best practice in the world. Um, you'll still have improved the horse's life, hopefully. But it's, it's sort of up to the individual to decide if they want to Um, give money to somebody who has been mistreating an animal in exchange for that animal. Um, And that can be really particular depending on the situation. Now, obviously, if you are getting a free rescue horse, then none of that applies. Um, Jazz was a $1 rescue. Um, I gave $1 to his owners um, so that we had like some legal basis for the bill of sale. Um, Personally, I don't actually know if that is a real thing but I have always been told that in order for a bill of sale to be legal you there has to be an exchange of money so I always pay a dollar um, for my free rescue horses just because I want to cover my bases and make sure that somebody can't come back later and say oh that bill of sale wasn't valid and I want my horse back So I paid a dollar for Jazz, um, and that was good. Jazz came from a private rehoming situation. I'm not going to talk a lot about where Jazz came from or his previous owners, because I think that's an invasion of privacy for his previous owners and previous caretakers. And um, without their permission and their blessing, I'm not going to discuss their private business on the internet or post it on a podcast, but I'll talk more in depth about him as we go down the list and we get to things I can talk about so when you're looking into a horse it's important to consider the financial commitment that's involved obviously horses are very expensive to start out with um, but you're going to need to consider other things on top of the baseline cost so you're needing to consider the cost of board or the cost of upkeep if you're keeping them at home their feed their care all of that you should also consider any maintenance costs that might be more expensive Um, Do they have any particular farrier needs? Are they going to need more intense farrier work even if it's just in the beginning to get them rehabilitated or any ongoing long-term care that's going to cost money in the way of um, requiring veterinary care, requiring more intensive farrier care, requiring body work, massage, whatever maintenance that they may require. And all horses have some costs associated with them involving like veterinary and farrier. And if you're if you have a riding horse, then I think that they should all be getting massage and bodywork because they're all having to do some pretty intense labor. Even if it's not as often or not as intense as like some sport horses, it's still beneficial to give them a massage now and then or give them a bodywork appointment now and then. So always be sure to ask about any maintenance or any health concerns that are going to cost more money ongoing. Another cost that people can sort of um, ignore or look over is the cost of training. So if you're not a professional trainer and you're taking in a horse that needs work, mm are you going to do that yourself? Um, Reasonably, can you do that yourself? And if you think you can, are you still going to be able to maintain the cost of maybe going to some clinics or occasionally needing assistance with a professional? And even if you want to do all of the training on your own, if you realistically know that that's not necessarily going to be an option and you're going to need help, Do you have the resources to pay for that help? Or is your horse going to end up sitting in a field or not getting the attention or not meeting the goals that you wanted to meet because you can't afford the training? Um, And obviously, it's not a bad thing to have your horse sit in a field and be a horse. Like, that's totally fine in my book. I don't care if your horse is a performance horse, but if you care about that, you need to take that into consideration. You also need to make sure that the location you have available to the horse will be suitable for that particular animal. Horses can have medical concerns or health concerns that require them to have different setups than others. Some horses need to be fed out of hay nets versus others have to be fed on the ground. Some horses need free access to more water than others. Some horses cannot be on grass. Some horses need to have grass. Some horses need tall, lush grass that's not going to be as stressed or as high in sugar, and others do fine on overgrazed or stressed grass. So speaking with a veterinarian or a previous owner or evaluating the needs of that particular horse and how they might differ from your average horse and looking into the setup you have. I mean, if it's your own property and you're doing everything yourself, then you're going to have a lot more ability to sort of adjust things and make changes as needed. But if you're planning on boarding them or putting them at somebody else's property, you might need to make sure that it's okay with them if you need to do any custom setups or any adjustments because some boarding facilities and some people don't want their properties to be switched around, even if it is better for the horse. Um, I know there are some changes to my property that i just wouldn't be able to accommodate um so that's something to take into consideration is making sure that the location you're putting them is going to be suitable for them another thing to take into consideration is the goals and expectations you're going to have in place for this horse are you wanting a horse that you can ride a horse that you can perform with or compete with or are you wanting a pasture pet a companion Um, what expectations are you setting out for this horse the main thing that will impact those expectations and their ability to meet them would be soundness. So are they sound? Do they have past injuries? Do they have conformational issues that are going to cause them to break down or to have injuries if you expect a large workload out of them? And it's always a good idea to get a vet check if at all possible. Um, I do not always vet check my horses and I've heard that like, oh, if it's a less than $5,000 horse, you shouldn't vet check it or less than $2,000, whatever price limit you want to put on it. Um, And I would say the price of the horse shouldn't be what determines that. It should be your goals for the horse. So if you want a companion and you don't care if you're ever going to get to ride them, maybe you want to, but if you genuinely do not care if you're ever going to be able to ride them and if it turns out you can't, you won't be upset about that and that'll be fine, then you may not need to get a vet check because you'll take everything in stride even if it turns out there's something wrong with the horse. But if you know that you're going to need to... But if you know that you're going to want to ride this horse, you're going to want to compete with this horse, you're going to want this horse to do some sort of work that requires its body to be fit and sound, then it'll be a good idea to go ahead and get a vet check done so that down the road you don't end up with a horse that can't meet your expectations. And then you end up in a really tricky place where you have to decide what to do, whether to keep the horse um, and keep that financial responsibility and that time commitment or to sell the horse to somebody else or what to do with it and that could be a really tricky place to be in. Other things that can impact your horse's ability to meet your goals and expectations would be their size and their age. So having a size appropriate horse is really really important. I know what a tricky subject weight can be in the equestrian industry. The most important thing needs to be that the horse can carry your weight, that the horse is comfortable when carrying your weight, and the horse isn't Um, too big to be able to hear you properly or communicate with you properly. Um, If your heels are at the widest point of the horse's barrel or effectively like your legs go halfway down the horse's barrel, they might be a little big for you. Um, And I say that because it's going to make it more difficult to communicate with them effectively um, with like use of your body weight or um, your seat aids or anything like that. Now, if you're planning on just um, clicker training them off of voice or doing something along those lines, and it doesn't matter how big they are. Um, however, small is where we tend to run into more issues. So if your horse is too small to comfortably carry your weight, then um, you sitting on their back is going to become uncomfortable for them, and eventually it will be an unpleasant interaction, and that's not fair to expect out of a horse. So it's important to take into consideration Um, the size of your horse and the build of your horse and make sure that they're going to be able to um, interact with you in a way that you want and of course age can be a consideration too if they're really really young it's going to take more time for them to finish developing and to become um, physically strong enough and put together enough to be ridden Personally, I don't start my horses under saddle in serious work until they're about five years old, depending on the horse. Some of them a little earlier, some of them a little later. One of my horses, Bear, is eight years old, and he grew an inch in the past year. So I know for a fact that his bones are still developing and everything's still shifting around. And if his body isn't put together, I'm not adding weight to the back of it. Um, On the other hand, River, my Clyde Warmblood cross, she's had a few people sit on her, and she's had some riding. However, um, she's only three, so I'm still not going to do anything intense with her. Um, In fact, she turns four this spring, and I'll probably start to do some more riding with her after her fourth birthday, um, probably later in the summer, but I'm not going to do anything serious until she's at least five. Um, Jazz is two years old. He might be three. Um, I got conflicting reports on his age, but the vet will be out to check his teeth, um, once his snotty nose clears up, which I'll talk about later when I talk about quarantine. Um, and... Once the vet is able to take a look at his teeth and sort of evaluate how he's doing on that front and what age he is, and that will impact our training plans and my goals for him. The last thing that I like to consider when looking at goals and expectations is their ability to be resold or rehomed. The way my program works is that I have a set number of horses that I'm willing to own and take care of, and that's based on the size of my property, the amount of work that I could do in a day, and um, the financial backing that I have for taking care of these horses. Every time I have a spot open up, I'll go ahead and fill it with a rescue horse that I take in. I then rehabilitate the horse, put training on it, and I work with it as though it's my own horse and down the road if an adopter comes by that wants to adopt them then I adopt them out to good homes. Most often my adopters tend to be clients or students that interact with them during lessons and fall in love and decide to take them and have them be their own horse. And if a horse is never adopted then they're going to stay with me for the rest of their life. I'm not in the market of flipping horses or reselling horses. I'm not a shelter in that. I don't take in horses for immediate rehoming. Um, I think of myself more as some sort of like sanctuary. The horse comes here, it can live the rest of its life here. However, most sanctuaries are more permanent and although I don't see myself as being a temporary home for these horses, I also don't see myself as necessarily being a permanent home. If somebody comes along and wants to give them a good home, then they're all up for adoption and I'm happy to pass them along to somebody who will take good care of them and love them and give them a happy life. So to sort of sum up what I look for in a horse and what I was looking for when I was looking for jazz, I want something sound and rideable. They don't have to be working under saddle. In fact, I usually prefer to start my own horses because I find that most traditional training methods form a pretty unpleasant connection with riding and it's a lot easier for me and a lot quicker to start them my way and have them have a great Um, interaction with being ridden right off the bat rather than having to retrain everything and correct that association. Um, But for the sake of my program, it's a lot more beneficial to me to have sound ridable horses for my lesson program. Um, All of my horses that are ridable can also do ground lessons and groundwork, so I'd rather not have a horse that can only do that when I already have lots of horses for that. And in the same way, I'm not a sanctuary. I'm not intending this to be their permanent home. I'm hoping that i can get them adopted out into a home that will love them and care for them so that i can continue to take in more horses and retrain more horses and save as many lives as i can and to that extent it's a lot easier to rehome horses who are rideable and who are sound and who don't have any maintenance Um, i'd also like a horse that's not too young and not too old Um, as you know As you might know, if you follow me on social media or have listened to previous podcasts, I have five pregnant mares on my property right now that are due to burst in the spring. And one of them is mine. The other four are from a different rescue organization, and I'm fostering them um, through their foaling and helping with the birthing process. So I'm going to have lots of really young projects out here starting in the spring, and I'm not really looking to add much more than that. I'd also rather not take in horses that are too old for that same reason of wanting them to be able to be rehomed. I have a couple of rescues that are on the older side, and they're probably going to stay with me for the rest of their lives, and I don't mind that one bit. But again, every horse that takes up a permanent a resident spot here is taking up a spot for other horses and removing my ability to take in other rescue horses and rehome them and give those horses a second chance at life and lastly even though it's a little shallow um if i have a pool of horses that meets all of those other requirements then i tend to go for ones that are a little flashier same reason of just being more rehomable, um, as well as being a little more popular with the lesson students that come out here. Personally, I've never met a horse that I didn't find adorable, and I didn't find a reason to love and think that they're very cute. I think every horse I've ever met, even if it's your classic big gelding or your classic chestnut mare, is absolutely precious. They don't have to have fancy coloring or fancy conformation or fancy movement in order to wow me, but I understand that the world we live in, it's a lot easier to rehome a horse that has a really cute color pattern or really cute movement or really cute build rather than one that has a conformation or color pattern or Um, general movement pattern that doesn't quite meet the aesthetic of people looking to buy new horses or um, adopt new horses. So that's me personally. That's what I look for in horses. It's not the same as everybody else and it's also not the same as if I were looking for like my own horse for myself. When I'm looking for horses, I'm looking at them for the purpose of coming into my program, being trained, being rehabilitated, and ideally being rehomed so that we can continue to do this. And if I'm looking for a horse for myself personally, is not going to be necessarily the exact same criteria. So think about what you need in your horse, what you expect from them, the facility you have and the location you have available to them. Um, Think about the financial commitment that you can make and take all those things into consideration when you're evaluating new horses and choosing which one to potentially take home. So now that you've chosen a pony, or maybe chosen a few ponies, your next step is to obtain one of them. So when you take in a new horse, it's really important to get some documents or some paperwork stating that you own the horse. Unfortunately I have seen people who will sell rescues or give away rescues for free but they won't come with a bill of sale and then down the road once you put more work into the horse and you've rehabilitated them that old owner or old organization that owned them will come back and say that you don't legally own the horse and legally they can have a right to take the horse back and that is that's just a horrible situation that nobody should have to be in so make sure that you get a bill of sale that legally states that you own the horse Again, I don't know if this is actually true, but I've always been told by lawyers and by other horse people that in order for a bill of sale to be legal and legally binding, there has to be an exchange of money. And for that reason, I usually pay a dollar for the free rescue horses that I obtain. Um, And you wanna make sure that in the bill of sale, you have the seller information, the buyer information, the horse information, and that's not just names it needs to have some brief description. So for the people you can put contact information, maybe address, phone number, email, anything like that. For the horse information you'll want to outline maybe the horse's name, registry information, if they have like a tattoo, a microchip, anything like that, that's awesome. Um, even if they don't though you can give a description of them, state their color, their height, their age, their gender, there any markings that they have anything you can use so that if somebody were to go and say oh well this was for a different horse you can definitively say no this is for this particular horse which I now own because you sold it to me Um, and then it should have some sort of statement on it that says like the buyer agrees to sell the horse listed above to the seller for the amount of blah 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 payment has been received and the horse is sold or the sale is final or however you want to word it and then signatures and dates from everybody involved So once you've officially bought the horse you own the horse Um, and even if it's not a purchase contract it might be an adoption contract which will have slightly different wording but still it should have the same um, information of buyer info seller info horse info a statement saying what's happened and then signatures from everybody And just to throw it in there, just a little side note, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a legal professional, and so if you're really concerned about having a legally binding document, please talk to, like, an actual lawyer, but this is just from my experience in, um, buying and selling horses for a really long time, and adopting and rehoming horses for a really long time. So, now that you legally own your horse, um, you need to get it to the place where you're gonna keep it. So, um, you can find a commercial hauler, you can haul yourself, make sure that your trailer is, um, safe and um they're not going to hurt themselves on it. I'm not going to go into full depth of how to rig like a properly safe trailer because that would be another like 3 hours of podcast. <laughs> um, but what I um will go into a little bit of detail about is ways to load your horse using positive reinforcement um and ways to unload your horse using positive reinforcement. So a lot of the time um, One of the most common problems that I see is horses not wanting to load and for me it tends to be a pretty easy fix because um, usually treats are pretty motivating. In that situation and a lot more effective than pressure release methods. So if you're gonna use pressure release on a horse that won't go in, into a trailer, um, you might escalate by adding like a chain, maybe tapping their rear end with a whip. Um, unfortunately there seems to be this um, really common thing where people use a broom. You like hit them on the butt with a broom or wave a broom behind them um, in order to like scare them forward into the trailer. Um, But usually that just results in them going, like, sideways and trampling the handlers or, like, jumping off the side of the ramp or (laughs) hurting themselves further. So that's not always the best um, option. Another option, of course, would be to, like, corral them into the trailer. So if you can make some sort of chute or some sort of, like, enclosed area where they can, um, where the only way to escape that area is to go into the trailer then you can make that area a really unpleasant place to be and eventually they will go into the trailer so This is a lot more effective if you if it's like a straight line, narrow chute going directly into the trailer because then you just have to scare them behind, you just have to add unpleasant stimulus behind them that will move them forward towards the trailer until eventually they're in and you can close the door. However, that's not always um, an option, depending on if you actually have a chute or movable panels that you can set up in order to get the horse into that situation. I've seen a lot of horses loaded through a round pin. And you park the trailer at the front of the round pin and you essentially round pin them in the way that you like you run them around a round pin as much as you can. And every time they start to go near the trailer or go towards the trailer, you start to release pressure and you give each time that they do that until eventually they learn the only way they're going to get to stop running and stop moving and stop having something chase them is to go into the trailer. And once the idea of being in the round pin is more scary or more unpleasant than the idea of being in the trailer, they'll go in the trailer. All of these options are about making it less pleasant to be outside so that then the horse wants to go inside the trailer. On the other hand, what I tend to do is I tend to make the inside of the trailer more pleasant. Um, This is really easy to do. Sometimes it just takes a hay bag, other times it just takes a handful of grain or maybe a bucket of grain and you can lure the horse onto the trailer. I was able to load Jazz using some really gentle pressure release. I actually have a video on my Instagram and Facebook if you want to watch it and I did a little voiceover describing what was going on. So when I got Jazz he was sick. Um, He has a really snotty nose and he didn't want to eat dry feed out of my hand and I wasn't really interested in feeding him wet slop given that it was like below freezing and super windy outside and my hands would actually fall off if I tried to feed a horse wet feed out of my hand Um, on top of it just being messy and gross. Um, So I went ahead. Um, He was trained to pressure release. He knows how to give to halter pressure and he wasn't Um, Although he was scared of the trailer, he wasn't extremely fearful of the trailer, and so I was able to lead him on using just really gentle pressure release with the halter. However, that's not always the case. Whenever I was leading the feral horses from care, two of them knew how to put a halter on and knew how to give to pressure, Um, but even then they weren't willing to give to pressure enough to load onto a trailer, and so I used grain to help lure them on. And when I say grain, I don't mean like a sugary cereal grain, it was actually like a pellet feed that's like a complete feed for them that's forage-based. So what I do is... I go ahead and open up the trailer so that I can walk all the way through. So I don't ever wanna be trapped inside a trailer with a horse or trapped inside a small area with a horse. I don't care how experienced of a horse person you are, that's a dangerous space to be in. So my number one thing when I'm loading horses is safety. The trailer that I have allows me to load the horse onto the trailer from one door and then go out another door. Anytime you're loading a horse onto a trailer, you should have access to an escape door or a way to get out of that trailer if needed. If your trailer does not have an escape route, then you need to teach your horse how to self load or you need to use a different trailer because it's just not an option to end up stuck in a trailer with a horse. So these care horses were totally feral. Um, I would open up one of the ramps. There are two ramps. There's one off the back and there's one off the side and there were two stalls inside. So the way I went ahead and did things was that I loaded the first two that did that were not halter trained at all that were totally feral and literally wouldn't even let me pet them at the time and I took a bucket of grain and I put one of them in a small corral um, is a little smaller than your average round pen. And the only way to get out of that corral would be to go into the trailer and the reason I did that was just so that she couldn't walk out into her field and decide it wasn't worth getting on the trailer. Um, It gave her a little more motivation because the corral is really boring. There's no food. Um, I think there might have been a water bucket but there might not even been water so there's nothing to do in this corral. It's very boring and I had a bucket of grain and a giant hay bag inside the trailer so lots of fun in the trailer not super exciting outside the trailer that said it's not scary or adverse outside the trailer there was never anybody chasing her or any like threat to her outside the trailer if she wanted to she could stand out there and just be sort of bored um, all day long and that's totally her prerogative she's welcome to do that However she wanted that grain Um, and so I stood at the edge of the ramp and I shook the grain bucket and when she would come over she would not take food from my hand but she would take food from the grain bucket which was in my hands and so I would shake the bucket and whenever she would come over she would get to take a bite out of it. And once she took the bite, I would, um, like, move the bucket down and away a little bit so she wasn't sitting there and bolting the feed and just inhaling it and eating all of it. Um, And I would stand in sort of a neutral position, and once she was done chewing, she would sort of look to me like she wanted more feed, and I would take a step back and shake the bucket again. And so... Um, at first she didn't get how the game worked and she was very annoyed. She was just like, Hey, please move closer so I can eat that feed. And I was like, no, sorry, ma'am. I'm going to need you to come up here. Um, and I just stood where I was and I shook the bucket and, um, I didn't like aggressively shake it nonstop. I would sort of, if she was paying attention to me, I would just hold it where she could see the grain and she could get to it if she took a step forward or stretched her neck. And if she, I sort of lost her interest, I would add a little shake, of the bucket or mix some of the grain around to draw her attention back to it. Um, Before too long she was willing to walk over and put her head over the ramp and eat off of the ramp and she was comfortable with that. And eventually we got the hang of, okay, the closer you are to the ramp, the more likely you are to get food. And she would sort of do a thing where she would walk in place or walk side to side because she didn't want to step onto that ramp. But within about 10 minutes of working with her, she was willing to put one foot on the ramp and she got treats for that. And then we slowly shaped that. And just over time, it was like, all right, you're putting your foot on the ramp, you get a treat. And then I would withhold the treats. And I'd just sit there and I'd hold them and they would be just out of reach. And um, then eventually she would put another foot on the ramp. Or, um, in fact, the first few times she would set her foot on the ramp and take a bite and then she'd immediately back up. And then eventually she started holding her foot there. And then eventually she put a second foot there. And we just kept shaping it and I kept scooting back further and further into the trailer until eventually she would be all the way on the ramp. Now, we had lots of approach and retreat situations here where she would go onto the ramp and then back off the ramp and then go on the ramp and then back off the ramp. And even getting her actually into the trailer, there there were several times where she would go all the way into the trailer and then she would turn around and leave the trailer <laughs> or back out of the box. And every time that happened, I was totally okay with that. I did not mind that one bit because I don't want to get her on there and then trap her. That's just going to teach her that when she trusts us and she's willing to, like, work with us and follow and go after, like, a target or a lure, that we're going to trick her and it's going to end up turning unpleasant. Um, so I kept working with her until she went all the way on the trailer, allowed me to turn around and go through the escape door. And when I left the escape door, I dumped all of the grain onto the ground, um, which I had straw bedding in there, um, and it was, like, in the straw so she could sort of dig around for it and look for it, and I walked around the trailer, and I put up the latch and put up the door. So then she was in the trailer, she was choosing to be on the trailer, she could have left if she wanted to, but she was like, "All right, there's grain here, I want to be here, and she chose to be on the trailer. Now, I had three more horses to load two of which were somewhat halter trained and one of which is also totally feral and I have two boxes in my trailer like two box stalls. so the plan was the horses were sort of in pairs like two of them had been out together and the other two had been out together so we were going to put two in each box So from there, I loaded the second feral one through the other ramp into the second box using the same methods of just shaping with a grain bucket until they were finally loaded onto the trailer and I was able to leave and then put up the door without her wanting to escape. So now I had two horses, one in each box, Luckily, my, the way my trailer's set up, um, it has a door in between the two boxes. And I say luckily, but, like, I, I planned for this. This was the plan when loading them. Um, is Thanks to that door, what I was able to do is I was able to enter the stall with the first mare. And I opened that door. And then I just waited about, like two or three minutes and they both went in the same box together and then they were in the same box I was able to come in shut that door so now I had two mares that got along well in one of the boxes and then I had to get the other two that were somewhat halter trained onto the trailer in that second box I went ahead and led them together and um, what I did because that can be a lot more dangerous is luckily I had help from um, the woman that runs the rescue shelter that these horses came from and she went ahead and held them on one side of the trailer and I took a bucket of grain and I went over to the other side of the trailer and we were able to actually um put the lead ropes over. I think we put them over their backs we might have handed them to me um but I think they just put the we just put the lead ropes over their backs I shook the grain bucket across the box from them and she sort of coaxed them on by giving them some gentle pressure on the lead ropes and they both at first they were like oh I don't know about this but as soon as one starts to go for the grain the other's like wait a minute she doesn't get to get the grain I want the grain and she would go for it. And then the other would be like, wait, is she going to get the grain? No, no, no. That's my grain. And so they pretty quickly, like they loaded almost instantly. They just both walked right up and got to that grain. Um, and I think I did have two buckets cause I was able, maybe I poured it on the ground, but I was able to feed both of them at the same time. Um, so that they weren't fighting over the bucket or anything. And then while they were eating, I went ahead and took off the rope halters that they had on. Um, and she shut the box from behind and then I shut the escape door and then they were all in the trailer munching on grain. let them settle in a little bit more before we started leaving Um, and then leaving was an adventure because my truck got stuck in the mud with the trailer attached but luckily they had a big old tractor so everything worked out in the end. Um, The other thing that I will mention safety-wise in terms of hauling is the halter situation. So if your horse knows to give to pressure and not to um, like panic and pull against pressure then that's a great tool for them because if they get caught up on something, they aren't going to pull until they hurt themselves. However, if my horses do not have a breakaway halter on, I don't care if they know how to give to pressure, I'm going to remove the halter and have them haul without anything on because I would rather them haul free and not have a halter on at all than haul with a halter on and risk the halter getting caught on something and then them hurting themselves sometimes like quite severely because their head is stuck on something and they're panicking, especially when it's, um, multiple horses in boxes together, which is also a safety thing that I normally will not do. I will normally only haul my horses in, um, alone in a box or in a, um, a stock, which would be like a slant or straight load trailer that has those like smaller stalls that just fit one horse and they just stand there. Um, I'm not usually willing to haul multiple horses, um, in like a stock situation where all of the horses are shoved in together. Um, but these mares got along really well and we needed to get four of them to one place and they weren't halter trained so I wasn't willing to put them in the smaller stocks where they're only one horse allowed because typically I want them to be tied in that situation otherwise they can turn their head too far and they can end up getting their head stuck and then they can panic and do stupid things that hurt themselves um so if they're not able to be tied they're gonna have to be in a box and I wasn't able to make two trips out to get these horses there and back so we held them in pairs and they did just fine they didn't have any injuries or any problems once you get the horse home um if it's a short drive you can just do it all at once if it's a longer drive you need to stop to make sure that they get food and water in between and it's not a bad idea if you're able to to unload them and let them stretch their legs a little bit and then get back on. Especially if they're stuck in one of those narrow one-horse stalks. <clears throat> I think I'm losing my voice and I apologize for that. Um, but we're almost done, so we'll keep going and we'll power through. So um, once you get home, um, it's time to unload them. Usually unloading is pretty um, straightforward. Usually they're willing to come off the trailer. Um, but the way you unload can determine whether it's safe or whether it's unsafe. The biggest risk when you're unloading is um, trampling or getting crushed. Um, by the horse on their way out. So again, if you don't have the ability to escape or get away from the horse while you're unloading them, then I would recommend getting a trailer that has an escape door or a way to get away from them or teaching your horse to self-load and self-unload. And when I say self-load and self-unload, I mean a horse that you can lead them up to the trailer and they go in on their own or they unload on their own and then you can grab them once they're out of the trailer so that you aren't required to go into the trailer with them at any point in time. With the care mares, the ones that I was telling you about, they did really well. Um, When I got home, I backed my trailer up, so it was right up against their pasture, and I opened the gate, and I was able to use some movable corral pens and set them against the trailer and secure them so that the horses could, I could open the door, and they could all just go off out into the field, Um, and so I did that, and the first two Um, we just sort of stood in the trailer and they looked at me like, look, we're in the trailer. Give us our grain, please. (laughs) And I was like, come on, ladies, you can go look, there's a grass field. And they were like, cool, cool, cool. We like grass, but also like, look, we're in the trailer. Where's our grain? And so I had to get a grain bucket. And all I did was I just brought a grain bucket around and I shook it. And then they're like, oh, okay, we'll come off the trailer. And they came off the trailer and they both took a handful of grain. Um, Well, a mouthful of grain because neither of those two mares would eat from my hands yet. Um, And then they sort of noticed how much grass there was and they walked off into the grass. And then I was able to go in and open the door to let the other two mares out. And they were both very willing to go out. I actually, um, the way the door opens, there's like two doors. So I can open one and stand behind it. And the horses can move out of the trailer without um, being at risk of being trampled or crushed. Um, I guess technically they could squish me, but they'd have to like go out of their stall and then like smush the door, but I, I don't know. I, I didn't think that that was going to be a huge risk. I thought either they wouldn't want to go out and I'd have to lure them out or they'll just go right out and I shouldn't have a problem. So I went ahead and I opened that door and right away they sort of peeked their heads around and I talked to them to let them know I was there because that's another risk is if I like spook them or they notice me while I'm behind them, they might kick or do something like that. So I talked to them and they're like, yeah, we know you're there. We're okay with you. These are the ones that were somewhat halter broke. And I was like, come on, ladies. And I just sort of talked to them and they're like, okay. And they walked out of the trailer and they walked off the ramp and they trotted out after the other mares. And they could see them at that point going out to graze. So I think they knew what was up and they trotted right out after them And they started grazing and everything was nice and happy and everyone did really well. So sometimes unloading can be really simple. Other times it can be a little more complicated. The rescuers I just took in, Jazz, did not want to unload off the trailer. Um, he was, uh, <laughs> the poor thing was really, really nervous and I went ahead and I put the halter and lead on him and I had him at my property and he wasn't in a small enclosure. The way my property works is I can drive in and close the gate and then the entire property is fenced and it's all for the most part safe. I wouldn't necessarily use the main area as a pasture space because I'm sure there are things that they could get their legs caught on and cause problems, Um, but if we have a loose horse or something it's relatively safe. Like the horses aren't going to get out of the property or get on the road and they're not going to end up... um, There's no like really dangerous footing or areas that could hurt them. So I went ahead and I closed the gate and I was going to ask him to unload, um, on his own, like using, I put the halter on while he was still inside just from the door. And then I held the lead rope and I asked him to come off with some gentle pressure. And he was really freaked by that. He did not want to come off the trailer. Um, and I tried walking up the ramp. I wasn't willing to go in the stall with him because he was really freaked out and I'm not willing to get smushed by a horse or trampled by a horse. But even me being on the ramp, it didn't seem to help at all. Um, sometimes they just, don't want to be pulled on from outside of a box and expected to like leap out of the box Um, but even me standing on the ramp and trying to talk to him he didn't want to come down off the ramp so I went ahead and I put the lead rope around his back and I talked to him a little bit and I gave him some pets and he was kind of okay with that he's a little bit scared of hands so pets aren't really a motivating stimulus for him but they're not like extremely unpleasant most of the time um as long as you're not like too quick to raise your hand towards his face so I went and I got some grain and I shook the grain bucket but again he wasn't wanting to eat dry food I think because he's feeling a little sick so I wet down the grain bucket and this whole time he could walk out if he wanted to like he could just walk off the trailer and um he just stood there in the box on the trailer and so I went and I wet down the grain and I brought it back and I like sloshed it around and I let him take a bite out of it and he was more excited about that but still not enough to come off the trailer and so I just stood there and I talked to him for a while and I had the food Um, and that's actually when he got the name Jazz he came with a different name Um, but for the previous owner's privacy and for the sake of giving the horse a fresh start and making sure that any of their background before they were rescued doesn't follow them or cause any drama in their future I usually rename the rescue horses I take in I will also rename them because a lot of the times they have some negative associations with their names. I've seen horses that when the, you call their name, they actually startle or jump because they're expecting to get in trouble um, when they hear their name called. So if that's the case, I'll go ahead and rename them. And I was considering renaming him. There wasn't a lot of like bad blood that came from his rescue situation, so he would probably be a candidate for keeping his name. Um, if he likes his name however I was calling his name he wasn't really coming to it um and I started calling him by some nicknames and I finally said like Jazzy Jazzy come here and he sort of lifted his head up and looked at me and I was like yeah good boy Jazz, come here Jazz. and I was like sloshing the water or the like mash bucket thingy and he sort of took a couple steps over towards the ramp and he took another bite and I was like yeah good boy Jazzy come on and I gave him um I went ahead and grabbed the lead rope gave him a little tiny pressure um like a little wiggle and sloshed a little mash around and then he was like okay he he literally he took a breath and then he went ahead and walked off the trailer and once he was down off the trailer he was really happy and he took a couple bites of grass and he led over to his little pasture um, really nicely um and so since then I've been calling him jazz or jazzy and he's really liked it I've also since found out that there was another horse at his barn named jazz and so I'm wondering if maybe like That horse gets a lot of, like, affection and attention or treats or something, and that's why he, like, likes the name Jazz. I don't know. Um, It could also be that he just likes the sound, or it makes him happy. Maybe somewhere in his past he was called something similar to that, or a human used a word like that, and it was... Had a pleasant association or maybe he literally just likes the sound I don't know but regardless he likes it so I'm gonna call him jazz or jazzy so the, now that you've obtained your pony you've hauled him to your place you've unload, unloaded them you officially like you have your pony there are a few things that you can consider when you first take in your horse um the main thing is quarantine so if your horse comes from an unknown background or they've traveled along Um, and they've interacted with a lot of horses. Um, Maybe they've been through a feedlot or an auction, or maybe they've been at some big hauling barns or boarding barns that have a lot of traffic coming through them. It's a good idea to give them a 30-day quarantine or pseudo-quarantine. Sometimes this means putting them in an isolated paddock so that they can't interact with the horses except over the fence. However, if they can still touch noses, they can usually still spread diseases. So most of the time a quarantine needs to be where they can't touch noses. Um, A full quarantine would have them even further separated from the horses, so that ideally even airborne illness won't transfer from one to another. Um, Jazz is in what I would call a pseudo-quarantine. He can see the other horses, they're sharing the same air. Um, I mean, they're outside, so they're always sharing air, but they're like, there's about a 20 foot gap between the edge of his paddock and the beginning of the nearest paddock. So he can get somewhat close to their horses and he can watch them. Um, But his pasture space is separate. He can't touch noses. And that's because he has a pretty snotty nose. So he clearly is like a little bit sick. So I'm just going to wait for that to clear up. Usually once it clears up, I'll give them about a week of being healthy before I'll put them out with the other horses um, or put them in a space where they can touch over the fence and start to interact with each other and then eventually go out together. Um, But if you're ever nervous or you don't know what to do in terms of a quarantine or you think you have a sick horse, definitely call your vet. Talk to somebody who's actually a professional in this like situation. Um, another side note: I'm not a vet, so I can't actually like tell you how to quarantine your horse or how to deal with a sick horse. That's something you need to figure out for yourself. When you're ready to introduce them to the herd, that can be a really tricky situation. Um, you want to make sure that there's no fighting or no issues that are going to cause um, any injuries or undue stress on the horses. Usually, I'll let mine meet over a fence. Make sure that the fence is safe. Certain types of fences, the horses can get their legs caught in, and sometimes when they're first interacting, they'll like do the thing where they like squeal and like strike out with their front leg or they'll kick at each other And both of those can cause them to get their legs caught in fences if it's the wrong type of fencing. If it is the type of fencing that they can get caught in, make sure that it's weak enough that if they are caught up, it's going to break before the horse breaks. You can fix a fence board, um, and that's not the biggest problem in the world to have, but fixing a broken leg on a horse is a whole nother situation. So I prefer my fencing to break before my horses break if given the option. You also want to make sure that when they are finally in together, they have enough space to get away from each other. I find that if you turn a new horse out in a herd, um, like Cold Turkey, just, hi, here's a new horse, you never got to meet him, but now he's in with you, and they have a huge open range, they don't really have problems. Um, I'm sure there are exceptions to that. I'm sure there are some horses that are just annoying enough that they still have problems, um, or whatever reason they still have problems. But for the most part, if you turn horses out into a herd with no, like, proper introduction, if they do start to fight, they can run away from each other and get enough space. They don't tend to have issues. But if you have a smaller paddock where if the horses start to fight, they're going to end up running into fence lines or they could corner each other, you're definitely going to want to introduce them over the fence, let them get to know each other a little bit, let them interact, learn to read each other's body language with some sort of protective barrier in between them before you ask them to go out together. Once they are out together keep a close eye on him, watch for any um, behavioral issues or um, any resource guarding or issues like that. Resource guarding can sometimes be solved by adding more resources to the paddock so that that way they have um, more access. So even if one horse wants to guard one water bucket, well, there's another one across the paddock they can get to. Um, Same thing with having plenty of access to food and other resources. Speaking of food, another thing to consider when you're getting your horse into its new space is weaning it onto any feed changes. If possible, it's a good idea to get some of the horse's old feed and do a slow change. That said, I've had a few horses that come from rescue situations where they have like moldy hay or um, they were fed like inappropriate feed, like maybe um, feed this for cows that has like ruminant based properties that horses should not be eating. Um, And in that case, I'm not going to transition them because it's better for them to not eat moldy hay than to um, have a little bit of a tummy ache from the harsh transition. Um, But when you are transitioning them, just try to be as gentle as you can and spread things out over time as much as you can and always keep a close eye on them for any symptoms of like digestive upset or any signs that they might have colic or any gas or anything like that. And if you do have to do things more abruptly, then definitely keep a really close eye. Make sure they have plenty of access to water. Make sure that they have um, room to roam and to walk around because a lot of the time, um, a lot of colics can be prevented by getting adequate motion. And just the, even when they're just walking around or when they're doing a graze walk, that sloshing of their belly so that they can move appropriately can really help things. So, you've had your new horse, you put them through a quarantine or a pseudo-quarantine, or maybe you didn't and maybe you just went ahead and put them out, Um, but you've introduced them, they're in the herd, um, you're adjusting their feed slowly. So, when do you start training and interacting with them? Uh, That's a very good question, is when to start. There are lots of different opinions on when that should happen. I will not take a horse into a training situation or a training session unless it is relaxed and content and has all of its needs met. So, If you just put your horse out in a pasture with all of its needs met um, after it was in a situation where its needs weren't met for a long time, it might take a little while for them to really relax into that situation and feel secure. Some horses will adjust in a matter of days, others it'll take longer. You also should consider their body condition. Do they need to put on weight? Do they need work on their feet? Um, Do they need a vet to check on them or their teeth? And all of that should be considered before you start doing any interactions that demand um, much from them. I'll usually start some gentle interactions in about a week. Um, If they're unhealthy or they have um, a lot of anxiety, then I'll let them settle in extra long. Sometimes it'll be a month, sometimes it'll be longer. It just, it really does depend on the horse and you have to really watch their behavior and watch their attitude. But if they're comfortable and they're relaxed and they seem to have settled in quite nicely, then I'll go ahead and start some interactions and some basic training. The first thing I do is establishing how to take treats. So um, I might do this over protective contact if I think that the horse is going to have a lot of problems with it. Um, Because I'm a professional and I'm really experienced with teaching horses how to take treats, I usually don't have to use protective contact, but um, a lot of my students will still have to use it and people who are newer to the um, situation should definitely use protective contact. It's just a basic safety measure and that should always be top priority. So I'll go ahead and interact with the horse, um, whether it's through protective contact over a fence or through a fence um, or over a stall door or or, um, from inside a shelter or however it works. I'll go ahead and begin by just feeding them a few treats. They get the idea of, oh, hey, this person has treats and they will give them to me from their hand. That's awesome. And then I start to time when I give them the treats and when I'm not giving them treats. So if they're doing anything I don't like, then they don't get treats. And when they do things I like, they get treats. Typically this starts out by just teaching like a calm, standing behavior so if they're standing and their head is away from me and they're calm they get a treat if not then they don't get a treat this is where protective contact can be really handy because some horses when they're not getting treats will get very frustrated and they'll try to like physically go after the treat so that'll involve like pushing or like people call it mugging when they like mug you with their nose they like push and try to get to the treats they could bite they could nip they could lip at you um they could push into your space. I've even seen horses that get mad and get aggressive. They'll like pin their ears. They'll swish their tail. They'll threaten to kick. They'll do all sorts of things because they're just generally upset with you not giving them treats. And that's absolutely un- unacceptable behavior. But rather than um, adding some sort of adverse stimulus, which is also giving them attention, which is part of what they want. Um, I would recommend just getting behind a protective contact barrier so that they can throw their little hissy fit all they want and it's not going to it's not gonna accomplish anything. And then eventually when they do calm down and they do relax, you can add treats into the situation again. <clears throat> there can be other reasons that your horse is reacting like that to treats. It might be too high value of a treat. You might need to use something lower value, like if you're using alfalfa pellets. You might need to try like Timothy pellets or even some hay, like a handful of alfalfa hay or a handful of normal hay. Um also make sure that your horse has all of their needs met like are they hungry because if they're hungry then they're going to be like assertive about trying to get to food and that's not their fault they're hungry so it usually doesn't take too long for horses to get the hang of the idea that um they're actually working for the treat they're not simply getting the treat so if the horse thinks they're just getting the treats for the sake of treats then they're going to try to physically go after the treats and that'll create those like mugging behaviors but it doesn't take long for the horse to figure out that in order to get the treat they have to do something they have to do a behavior such as standing still or putting their head away um or whatever it is then you can start to shape that from there and you can shape it into anything you want that's where your goals and your decisions and your training plan come into place do you want them to put a halter on do you want them to follow you do you want them to target do you want them to pick up their feet do you want them to smile whatever behaviors you want to train into them you can then start to do that because you now have a horse that has been rescued that is yours that you own you've brought it to your facility, you've brought it to your property you've gotten them settled in on the property and you've started interacting with them they know how to take treats nicely have fun, have fun training your horse so hopefully this helps anybody who's in the process of obtaining a new pony Um, I wish you luck Um, it's an amazing thing it's a very fun thing to get your first pony or get a new pony even if it's your 100th pony it's probably still going to be great because getting ponies is awesome (laughs) so so If you want to follow Jazz or his journey, feel free to follow me on social media and I'll post lots about him as time goes on and about training him and getting him healthy. If you have any questions or comments or anything else you want me to talk about, feel free to send me a voice message on Anchor or comment on any of my social media platforms. Thank you for listening. This has been Steph K. Equestrian and the Plus R Purist.